Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Good morning, Grace. How are you? My name is Jeremiah. Uh, I work with the student ministry here at Grace. And uh, I just want to start this morning by uh, talking with you about some of the different types of fears that we can experience in this life. I mean, there are so many, there's so many kinds of fears we have. Some of our fears have to do with the safety of our bodies, like the fear that I experienced the time that I willfully jumped out of a perfectly good airplane at 12,000 feet above the earth, or, or the panic that I endured as a young boy at Schlitterbahn when I had gone down a tube chute on the cliffhanger tube ride and, and I got stuck and was pinned down to the bottom of this shallow pool by a man in an inner tube who didn't even know I was under him. I don't know how that happens. I thought I was done. I thought I was going to be breathing my final breath on the cliffhanger in New Braunfels, Texas. But there are deeper, more serious doubts, too, that we can experience in this life. You know, there are doubts about uh, and fears about the safety of our souls that we can have. And, and the most profound fear I've ever experienced in life has to do with a question that has haunted me at, at three distinct points in my adult life. And that terrifying question was, how do I know that I'm truly a Christian? How do I know that my faith is genuine? How do I know that, that I am part of God's family? And maybe you've been uh, dogged by this question too. Maybe you're even wondering that question, being confronted by it, even as you sit here in your seat today. And there are a lot of roads that can lead us to, to questioning our salvation. You know, it could be the death of a friend or, or a sin that has overpowered us for the 382nd time and we're left feeling defeated and, and guilty again. Or maybe you've questioned your salvation from simply reading your Bible. There's a passage in, in Matthew 7 uh, in the words of Jesus, and uh, it has greatly disturbed me for a long time. It still does. And in Matthew 7, listen to what Jesus says. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus says, you may have known my name, but I do not know yours. And what's so alarming about this passage is that, that the people he's talking about are church people. You know, these are people who in the name of Jesus were prophesying and, and performing exorcisms and, and working miracles. I mean, and they weren't just churchgoers. These were church leaders. If they were here today, they would be leading mission trips. They would be hosting life groups, teaching in a discipleship community. They would probably know their Bibles better than any ten of us put together. And yet Jesus says to them, these people who were fully confident that they had genuine, authentic Christian faith, he will say to them on the last day, away from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. My question is, is how do I know that I'm any different? How can I know that I'm not going to hear those words from Jesus' mouth on the last day when I stand before him? How can I know that I'm truly a Christian, that I'm, I am part of God's family? Is there a way to know that? And what's awesome, what's wonderful is that there is an entire book of the Bible 
that God has given us as a gift that answers these very questions. It answers the question, how can we know? Is there a way to be assured that, that we're part of God's family? Is there a way to know that, you know, to have confidence in that? And that book is 1 John. It's written by the Apostle John, and, and he writes this letter to, to a group of Christians who were wondering this very same question. They were wondering, are, are, are we truly saved? Do we really have faith? They're, they're wondering this question. And so John writes in this letter, and, and the reason why, why they're asking these questions is because there was a group of, of seemingly strong Christians that were among them. They looked like good Christians. They prayed like good Christians. They, they read their Bibles like good Christians. And yet, and yet it seems that they were just like that group that, that Jesus talked about in Matthew 7. Because these, these folks had abandoned the church. They turned their back on the church, and there was this, this nasty church split, and they had taken off. And, and this is what John says about that group in chapter 2, verse 19. He says, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. See, these believers that John is writing to, they had seen this group. And, and they'd gotten to know them. They were leaders among these believers. And yet... And yet in the end, they had shown that they didn't want to be a part of this church and they didn't have anything to do with the Christian faith after all. And so these Christians were wondering, what about me? And what if I am no different? A very valid question. And they, they were confused and they were disturbed by this question. And so what John does in, in all five chapters of this, of this book, what he's going to do is he's going to speak to these Christians and to us and he's going to say, look, there is a way that you can know. Hey, there's a way to be assured that that God is your God, that you're part of his family. There's a way to, to, to be assured about that. And in fact, uh, John's going to tell us in chapter 5 that that is the whole point of this letter that he's writing. It is that we might be assured that we are Christians. And in, in verse 13 of chapter 5, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know, so that you may be assured that you have eternal life. And John's going to tell us that there are, there are three attributes that you will find in your life when you are walking with God, when you are in relationship with your heavenly Father. There are, there are three qualities that you're going to see in your life and that others are going to see when they look at you. Hey, but before we get to what those three attributes are, something that I'd like to point out that I want us all to see is that there is this principal metaphor throughout the book of 1 John that, that, that just is striking. It stands out to you when you read this letter. And, uh, and, and that metaphor that John will use over and over again is the metaphor of the family. He's going to use familial language to talk about us and our identity as Christians and our relationship with God and in our relationship with one another. And, and in 105 verses, all the verses in 1 John, in 105 verses, John will say 71 different times he will use this family language to talk about us, to talk about our relationship with God. And then he'll, he'll refer to God as our Father, as the Father, 13 times. He'll talk about Jesus as the Son 23 times. He'll talk about Christians, fellow believers, as God's children 14 times. And then Christians, he'll say, are born of or born from God eight different times. And then finally, he'll talk about us as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. This family language is throughout this book. And the reason I point this out and the reason we need to understand and, and fully appreciate this is to know that, that our God, our heavenly Father, that, that he's a good dad. And that what he wants for us is he wants us to know that we're his children. Okay? He wants us to be assured that, that he is our father. He doesn't want us asking those questions. He doesn't want us to be, to be confused about whether or not we are, in fact, his children. 
The Father wants you to know that you're his. He wants you to rest assured in the knowledge and have complete confidence and assurance that you're part of his family. The Father wants that for you because he's a good dad. Okay? That's why John is going to use this family language so that we might understand that, that God is, is, is our God, but he is also our heavenly dad. And this is what dads want for their kids. This is what parents want for their children. Right? I mean, just think about it. If, if you have children, what is most important to you that they know? I mean, isn't it that, that they know that they are your kids, that you love them, that you cherish them, that you value them, and that you always will? Don't you want them to know that? Absolutely you do. I mean, when you leave for work in the morning or you drop them off at school, do you ever say to your kids, do you ever say, have a great day, honey. I love you. Or maybe I don't. I'll see you this afternoon, honey. I'll see you when you get home from school. Or maybe I won't be here. Do you ever say to them, I care deeply for you because you're my child? Or maybe you're not. Maybe you're somebody else's child. Do you ever say those things to them? No. We would never do that. That wouldn't just be wrong. That would be evil. Right? We want our children to know that they are ours and that we love them. And the Father is no different. Our Heavenly Father is no different. He wants us to be assured that he loves us, that he will never abandon us, that we will always be his. Okay? That's why John is going to use this family language over and over again so that we get this, that the Father wants you to know that you're his. Hey, he wants you to rest in confidence that you're one of his children. Hey, and let's be clear that these attributes of God's children, they make us resemble God, okay? They make us resemble our Father. They show that we're in the family, but, but I, I want to make sure that you understand that these attributes aren't what get us into God's family. Okay, any more than the attributes that you resemble and, and share with your parents got you into your family. Okay, my, my kids aren't Eblings. They didn't become Eblings because they're short with tiny little noses. Okay, they're short with little noses because they're Eblings. Okay, so let's not get the cart before the horse. Let's make sure that we understand that this is, this is what we look for to see evidence that we're in the family, not what gets us into the family. Hey, let's not get that card before the horse. And, and what I love about 1 John is it is a perfect sequel to the book of Galatians that we've studied over the last number of weeks. Because what Galatians is all about is how you get into God's family. And then 1 John says, and this is how you can be assured that you're in his family. Right? Galatians says that it is through faith alone, right? by grace alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And then 1 John, John's going to be telling us, and, and this, is, this is how you can have confidence that you're one of God's kids. Okay? So, so let's get to it. What are the three attributes, these three qualities that John says that we're all going to have, that we're going to possess, that we're going to see in our lives if we're God's children, if he is our heavenly father? What are, what are those three attributes? And the first attribute that John's going to tell us is that God's kids obey their dad. God's children are going to listen to their heavenly father when he instructs them, and, and they're going to obey. And in and, and the passage that we'll see this in, uh, it, it, you know, John will say it three different times in this, these short couple verses. Chapter 2, he says, we know, again, we can be assured that we have come to know the Father. We have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. So what do God's kids do? They listen to the words of their father. When he speaks to them, we respond. We, we obey. You know, we do, we do what the father asks us to do. 
when our wills and, and our intentions and our desires are confronted by the word of God, our ears and our hearts are open to how God would want to change us, to what he's wanting to do in our lives. And, and this is how children relate to their parents, right? Children listen to their parents and they obey them. Or at least that's what I've heard they do out there <laughs> in other families, right? Children obey their parents. That's what they do. Uh, just imagine later today, if you were at a park, uh, there was a playground full of kids. Hey, and you see a dad walking up to this playground and he's calling out the name of his daughter. And he's saying, it's time to go, honey. How would you know who his daughter is? The one who responds. The one who obeys. The one who comes, even if it's eventually. <laughs> right? How do I know if I'm one of God's kids? What do I look for? When he calls my name, when he instructs me, am I listening? Do I respond? Is there obedience, even if it's eventual obedience? Right? Because we don't do this all the time. It doesn't happen this way right away. Just like, like little children have a pretty difficult time obeying their parents right away. But what you will find in your life is that when you become a Christian, that God implants in you a new heart. And that with that new heart, what happens is God's grace becomes, it, it becomes transformative in your life. And, and I don't, it's a miracle. It's a miracle how we begin to learn and even desire to obey our dad, to listen for his voice and respond and, and change when he, when he calls for us to change. You know, that begins to happen in our lives, and we'll start to see that. And it's, it is a slow but sure change, right? I mean, we are born rebels. Okay? This has to be, this has to be, uh, it has to be, I don't know, pulled out of us by a miracle, by the grace of God. But it does happen. And it will happen in our lives. And, you know, and one thing to understand is that John is talking about progress. Okay, this is not perfection. All right, it couldn't be perfection because John earlier in this letter is going to say, uh, uh, you know, he's going to say, look, if anybody claims to be without sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So he's not talking about perfect obedience. But what he is saying is that you're going to see in your life, if you're a child of God, you're going to see this slow but sure change. You're going to see this progress in your ability, in your willingness, in your desire to listen to the Father. And to do what he says. Okay? And, and if that word obedience, if it's, if it's nails on a chalkboard for you, then let's just remember what kind of a dad it is that we're obeying. Okay? He is not Homer Simpson laying on a couch yelling at you to bring him another beer. That is not our God. That is not our Heavenly Father. Hey, what our Heavenly Father will do is when he, when he asks us to do something, when he, when he commands us, when he calls us to obedience, it is because he has something better for us than our own will would lead us to. Right? And that's why John's going to say God's commands are not burdensome. No, no, no. No, they're lighter. They're, they're more joyful. They're safer than what we would find on our own. You know? And so when God calls us to keep our minds and our, our bodies pure, it's not because he secretly hopes us to be, be miserable any more than, than a dad tells his son to stay out of the street because he hates fun. Right? No, God, God's commands are to protect us. They're to bring us to a fullness of life we wouldn't experience otherwise. And I'm not saying his commands are easy. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that, that following him and obeying him is always easier than the alternative. So when you look at your life, are you, are you seeing this obedience, this desire to listen and respond to the Father? Are you seeing progress in that area of your life? Because John says you need to be looking for that. And that, that will bring you assurance. As you see that in your life, that's going to bring you assurance that you are God's child. And we need to understand, too, that, that part of what John is saying is, is he's giving us a warning a little bit too, right? He's saying as you look at your life, if you don't see obedience, 
Okay, if you see, uh, and if you're living in, in willful and defiant sin, okay, if you're living in opposition to the revealed will of God for you, then, then you should have no confidence that you're one of God's children. Okay, you should not be assured of that. Hey, if you are seven feet tall and the people that you call mom and dad are five foot nothing, you may want to start asking some difficult questions about whether or not the people you call mom and dad are truly your parents and whether or not you're their child. Hey, but John's goal, his, his hope is to give us assurance, is to say, look, you see obedience in your life. You see this desire growing. You see this willingness to obey progressing in your life. Let, that, let God use that to assure you that you're his child. Okay. And then the second quality, the, the second thing that, that John's going to point to to say, look, this is what you can find in your life when you're a Christian, is that God's kids are going to love their siblings, that Christians can look at their lives, and what we're going to find in us is this, this growing, this deep affection for our brothers and sisters in Christ, for our spiritual siblings. And, and John says in chapter 3, he says, this is how we know, again, the, the assurance language, this is how we can be assured who the children of God are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. And then chapter 4, he says the same thing. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves God has been born of God and knows God. And, and there are several other passages in 1 John that will say this same thing, that you can know you're a believer because you'll see this love for your spiritual siblings in your life. And, and John's not talking about being nice or polite only. Okay? It's, it's something much, much deeper, more robust than that. And, and, and this is the kind of love that allows for strong disagreements to take place between Christians, between us as believers. And yet, yet even those interactions, they're infused with humility and generosity okay? and, and gentleness. And when Christianity first sprang up in, in the first century, in the Greco-Roman world, what, what you found at that time was that they didn't know what to do with Christians because they had never seen a love like they saw in the believers at that time. And the, the Romans, they looked at Christians and they were bewildered by them, yet at, at the same time strangely attracted to this love that they saw in them. Okay, it was this attribute that made Christians stand out in that first century. And there was a Roman emperor. His name was uh, Julian the Apostate. And Emperor Julian, he hated Christianity and he wanted to kill Christians. He killed Christians because Christianity was growing and, and it was pulling people away from worship of the Roman gods. And uh, Emperor Julian, he writes this exasperated letter to a friend. And I want you to listen as I read just an excerpt from this letter. Listen for the number of different ways that Julian is going to say these Christians love. Hey, listen for it. He, this is what he writes to his friend. He says, The Christian faith is advancing rapidly through the loving service Christians offer to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Christian who is a beggar and that these Christians care not only for their poor but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should be giving them. Four different ways this emperor says about the Christians, he says, look at how audaciously these Christians love. He says they, they care for strangers. He says they make sure that a fellow believer never ends up on the street. They even make sure that our poor are taken care of, the ones that we don't care about. He, he says they care for their dead better than we care for our living. When a plague would hit a Roman city, all of the Romans would run out and right by the Christians who were running in to help. And John says, yes, 
He says, that, that is what I'm talking about. That is an inexplicable love that resembles their father, their heavenly father. It's a love that can only be born out of a love that comes to us from somewhere else, from someone else, from our heavenly father. And just as, as often as John is going to talk about the fact that, that you will find this love in you for, for your brothers and sisters in Christ, he's also going to say, you know what you won't find in you if you're a believer? He says, you won't find hate for a spiritual sibling. In, in chapter 2, John says, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. He says, if we hate another Christian, how, how can we be in the light? Because hate can only grow in darkness. You see, a, a Christian is not going to find this sustained, passionate disdain for another believer in their lives. John says that, that couldn't be. And what John is challenging us to ask is he's challenging us to say, is there somebody, is there, is there a fellow believer that I despise? Is there a, a Christian that I have refused to forgive? And John's going to say, you know what, yeah, there's, there are times when there's an inherent dislike for, for somebody else, maybe even an intense one. But what you're going to see in the life of the believer is that the Christian is going to take those emotions and those feelings, and, and, and he or she's going to confront them and deal with them. Okay, that love is going, going to overpower hatred, that it will win out. Okay, that love of God in our lives is going to win. And he says, you're going to see that in your life. Okay? And you won't see hate growing. You'll see that, that kind of love growing. Okay? Love has always been one of the defining characteristics of, of the children of God. It always has been. It, one ancient writer said this about the first Christians. He said, they love each other even before they know each other. Isn't that incredible? What is one of the, the, the primary marks of the Christian? It's that we love, that we boldly, generously sacrificially love. And again, this is progress, not perfection. So we're going to mess this up. We're going to mess it up plenty. Probably even before we pull out of the parking lot today. Right? But what you're going to find in your life is this love that's growing, that's progressing. And so how do you know? How do you know that you share the Father's DNA? First, you see this growing obedience in your life, that you listen to him, that you respond like, a children, like children do with their parents. You see this love for your spiritual siblings growing. It's progressing in your life, and it's, it is beating out the hate, right? And then he says there's a third quality, and this is the most important of all. We've saved the best for last. And John says you're going to find this attribute in your life as well if you're a child of God. He says that God's kids believe in his son. They believe in his son. The children of God look to the son of God, and we put our complete faith and trust in him. A belief in the Son of God isn't just what gets you into God's family. It's also what assures you that you're one of his kids. And so look where John says it in chapter 3. He says, this is the Father's command. This is, how, this is part of how we obey the Father, that we continue this. We, we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. And then chapter 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. We believe in the Son. You see, this church split that had taken place in this church that John writes to, it didn't happen over the first two attributes we've talked about. It happened over this one. And the people that left, the people that abandoned the church and turned their backs on the Christian faith, what they showed, what they revealed about themselves is they didn't possess this, this primary quality of members of God's family. They didn't believe in the Son. 
And it wasn't that they said with, with Ricky Gervais that I think Jesus was just a myth. He was made up. He's just, he's, he's a concoction of our imagination. They didn't say that. Now what they did is they took Jesus and they redefined him. They said Christ didn't come in the flesh. He didn't have a body. No, he couldn't have had a body. And, and they, they put their own spin on Jesus. Instead of accepting who he said he was, they redefined him so that he would be safer than who he truly said he was. And he truly was. And 2,000 years later, that is still what is happening. Is people take Jesus and they redefine him so that he'll be safer than who he really is. Even the 50-year-old lead singer of an Irish rock band, he has pointed out that Jesus is always being turned into something tamer than he really is. U2's Bono, he was interviewed a number of years ago by a French journalist. And this journalist, it wasn't, wasn't a believer, and this journalist says, Sure, Christ is his rank among the world's great thinkers, among the world's great teachers, but son of God, isn't that far-fetched? And then look at Bono's reply. This is beautiful. Bono says, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, and he had a lot of things to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off that hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. And people say, no, 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 please, just be a prophet, a prophet we can take. But don't mention the M word because we're going to have to crucify you. And Christ says, but actually I am the Messiah. And so at this point, everyone starts staring at their shoes and says, oh, no, he's going to keep saying this. So what you're left with is either Christ was who he said he was, he was the Messiah, or he was a complete nutcase. And the idea that the entire course of civilization for over half of the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, that's far-fetched. You see, what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about the Son of God is always what will distinguish us from every other faith, from every Christian cult that has ever existed. I mean, you could try this out tomorrow morning at the gym or with your neighbors or, or your place of work. Go in tomorrow morning to the office and just tell your coworkers that you believe in God. There's a very good chance no matter what they believe that they will be happy for you. Many of them will commend you for that belief. But if you walk into the same office and those same coworkers and you say to them, I believe in Jesus. You'll probably have some coworkers angry at you, won't you? You might even lose your job for saying that name. You'll at least lose a friendship or two over it, probably. Why? Because the name God, that's safe. But the name Jesus, that name has always been dangerous. Jesus is not safe. And people try to make him tamer than he is, but he refuses to be that. He says, I am the Messiah. I am the one true Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Savior of you. He says, that's who I am. And John says, what do we believe about the Son? Do we believe that he is who he said he was? But it's not just believing that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, that he is who he said he was. It's also that we rest on his account. That's literally what it means to believe in the name of. It means that we rest on his account. That 100% of our sins, that they go on his account. And what does it look like? What does that look like to rest on somebody's account? Think about it like this. 
Right? Let's just say that you and your family were invited by a very, very wealthy person to an exquisite five-star resort okay, to, to stay completely free to you, okay, nothing out of your pocket, to stay for an all-expense-paid two-week vacation. And let's say you show up to the front desk on, on that first day and you see the total bill, how much it would cost to stay there for those two weeks. And, and your spouse doesn't know that someone else is paying for this. This other very wealthy person is going to be paying for this. What would your spouse say? They'd say, honey, we can't stay here. We can't afford this. I mean, look at how much this is going to cost. There's no way we could afford this. And you'd say, sweetie, you're right. We can't afford this. We could never afford this. But we're not staying here on our card. This is not going on our tab. We're resting on the account of this extraordinarily rich person who has offered to pay this for us. It is going on his tab. He has infinite wealth to cover the cost of this vacation, and he's going to pay it for us. That's what it means to rest on the account of Jesus. Look, when, when we look at, at the sins that are in our lives, every single one of them, they have to go on Jesus' account. Okay, because we would never be able to pay the bills that our sins have racked up. They all have to go on his account. And guess what? He has infinite wealth to cover the cost of those sins. He is the only one who can afford to pay those bills. And, and he, he earned that right by bearing the punishment that we deserved, by being nailed to a tree 2,000 years ago. And we have to, we have to rest, we have to land 100% on his account every sin going on his tab. You see, there was some time ago that, that I was being dogged by this question of, of am I truly saved? Am I one of God's children? And it was because there, there was this shame and guilt that I was, I was wrestling with. It was keeping me up at night. It was, it was flooding into every free moment of thought that I had. And it was over sin that was in my life and that had been in my past. And, and after about two weeks of this, there was one morning, one bright, beautiful morning where God gave me this gift and, and he, he brought me to the realization that those sins too, that those sins were going on Jesus' tab, that I could rest on his account even with those sins. He'd taken them and I didn't need to hold on to them anymore. And, and it was in that moment that, that, Jesus, that Jesus said, see, you are, you are my child because you're resting on my account. Now you've given me all of your sin. And I have infinite wealth to cover the cost of your sin. And maybe like never before, I was assured that day that I was a child of God and that I always will be. So when you look at your life, are you seeing these three attributes that John is talking about? Are you seeing them show up in your life? I mean, it's marvelous, isn't it, that God has given us this gift, this book, to say, look, you can be assured. You can rest in peace knowing that, that, that you are one of my children. And he says, are you seeing obedience to the Father in your life? Are you seeing that growing and progressing in your life? Are you seeing a love strengthening for us, for, for the family of God? And are you believing in the name of my son? Are you resting in his account fully, 100%? It's how you get into the family. It's how you can be assured you're in the family. And if you're seeing those things and you're seeing progress in those areas of your life, then, then John would say to you, he'd say, please be assured. Please be assured. You're God's child. Okay? And if you hear these things this morning and, and you're saying, you know, that's, that's not me. Those characteristics, I don't see them showing up in my life. Then, then why not join the family today? 
You know, this is no ordinary day after all. This is Palm Sunday. It was on this day two millennia ago that Jesus, he would stand on the Mount of Olives and he would look down at the city of Jerusalem and all of the people in that city. And he would weep as he realized that, that, that so many of them, that they didn't recognize that God was among them, that they didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior. And Jesus would weep knowing that within the week, he would give his life in order to take our sins from us that we might be able to rest fully on his account, that we might be restored to God and that we might become sons and daughters of the heavenly father. And he knew that was coming. And, and so I'd ask you, is that something that you, you are not a part of, but you would like to? Because you could pray and you could ask God today to make you one of his children, to make you his son, to make you his daughter. Now why wait? Why wait? Today is a beautiful day to do that. Rest on the account of Jesus, every last sin. On his tab. As Jason and the ushers come forward to lead us into a time of communion, let's go to our Father and let's thank him for the gift of this book, for this gift of knowing that we are his children, that he wants us to know that we're his. Okay, let's pray that now. Heavenly Dad, we are, are incredibly thankful that you care so deeply for us that you would want us to know that you're, we're your kids, that we are, are not orphans, that, that we are, are part of your family, and that you've given us a, a way to know. Like, like the Apostle Paul said, that we ought to test and examine our faith, that you've given us a way that we can take that test and we can see, are we truly part of your family? And I pray that your spirit would give uh, those of us who are wondering about that, who've questioned that, would your spirit give us full confidence today that we are your kids and that we always will be. Lord, and if there's anyone here that, that is not yet a part of your family, I pray that your spirit would be at work in their hearts even now, that they, would, that they would decide today is the day that they believe in the name of the Son, that they rest fully on the account of your Son, that every sin will go on his tab. Lord, I, I pray that, that they would say that prayer, that they would repent and, and in faith begin to walk with you as one of your children. And I pray that in your Son's name. Amen. For more information about Grace, visit our website at grace360.org.